Please bow your hearts with me in prayer. Father, we, uh, we thank you for this day. And, and all that it represents, Lord, in your, in your word in, in Jeremiah, you said, if, if, if I break the covenant, my covenant with the morning and night so, so they no longer come, so the sun no longer rises or sets, then, then so shall my covenant with David be broken that he won't have an heir on the throne. And so here we are, It's cloudy, but it's light out, so we know the sun rose, so we know that Jesus is still on the throne. And when we go to bed tonight, the sun will have set, and we will go to bed knowing that Jesus is still on the throne. Which gives us hope as we sing words like hell-bound man and knowing God that that applies to me. And that applies to us. And we can cry out, wash me, Savior, or I die. And knowing that when we bring our sin to you, that you remove it as far as the east is from the west. So, Father, we pray that you would guide us through your word here this morning. Expose to us the things that you long to expose us to, the things that we need to know, whether they are pleasant or not. And Lord, as the, as the table of the Lord's Supper is set in front of us, I pray that as we, as we hear the text this morning, as we move through what's being said and what's being described, would we view it through the cross? Help us to see the Gospel. Help us to see our need for Jesus. Whether, whether God, we've, we've walked with You for decades or we're just trying to figure out who you are, let us see our need for Christ and the cross. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We do this weird thing as people uh, where we make just the dumbest things in life into competitions. Um, I was recently watching a, a special on Seinfeld one of the great theologians of our time. And he talked about being a Mets fan. And he said, really, he said, we, we describe sports teams as we, but it's really just our laundry. Like, they're wearing our laundry. They're not from New York. These guys, many of them aren't even from the U.S. They're just wearing our laundry, and they're playing the laundry we don't like. And one day we'll call them a traitor because the other laundry pays them more than our laundry does. Um, and But we make competitions out of out of everything, and I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity, I'm guessing you have either observed this or been a part of it actively, of people verbally sparring for who has the best whatever it is. Maybe it's the best sports moment they witnessed firsthand. Um, Maybe it's who pulled the greatest prank and someone brags about stealing chickens and putting them in a dorm at the college they went to. Um, That was not me but it was someone in this room. Um, or maybe you brag about who had the worst fill-in-the-blank, who had the worst job, who had the worst injury, who has been mugged by the TSA the worst. 
And if you've ever seen this, especially the last one, it's really bizarre because people are really proud of terrible moments in their life when it comes to things like this. As though when they were in the midst of it, they're like, oh man, I just, I just fell off a ladder, broke my leg, ruptured some internal organ, and got temporary amnesia. I cannot wait to brag about this. Like one day, people are going to be bragging about their injuries, and I'm going to throw down and silence them. Like we just, like no one thinks that. And I don't think that in heaven there will be a time when there's an open mic, who had the worst ministry experience? But imagine if there was. I, I kind of hope there is. I don't think there will be. kind of hope there is. But let's imagine that. Like, maybe Hudson Taylor would get up and be like, all right, so this one time, interior China, I'm the only white guy they've ever seen. Uh, and then I got this crazy illness because I drank water that I shouldn't have. You know, or, or the Moravians who, who literally packed their belongings in coffins that they would be buried in to go around the world to places they had only heard of from sailors to tell the gospel. I'm sure they have some stories. Martin Luther might chime in at some point. He'd say, so this one time I, I pinned some announcements to a church door and it went viral the Pope sent a bull after me because I wouldn't eat any worms. Um, and if that's really confusing for you, come tonight at 6.30 and that will get cleared up. Um, and Dave would get up and he'd be like, this one time I had to work with a guy from Nebraska. And everyone would be like, oh man, that's terrible. And there would be silence for a while as people grieved with him. And then, and then after a while, I imagine a guy named Elijah would step up. Because Elijah had quite the difficult ministry. He didn't square off with a pope. He didn't deal with someone from the good life. He dealt with a king and a very wicked king at that. And not only that king, he dealt with the very wicked queen as well. But it wasn't just any king. It was the king of God's covenant people. The king who was supposed to be reading the law every year and making sure the nation abided by it. But instead, he, was in a, he led the nation in a deeply rebelled state of existence. Today we're starting a new series. And we're titling this Faithful Obedience, Walking with God in the Midst of Darkness. In this series, we're going to look at the first season of Elijah's ministry. His circumstances, his faithful obedience to God. And sometimes when we read these stories in the Old Testament, it can, it can be really easy to fixate on the excitement of it without realizing the struggle that faced God's people like Elijah. As they lived in days that were very dark, very broken, and incredibly evil. Now as followers of Jesus, as, as Christians, we live in this tension of sorts. We are citizens of heaven and we fully live and participate in a broken world and a sin, sinful world and a fallen world. We know darkness all too well and we have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling our hearts. One of the challenges that we face as believers is how do we balance this? And sometimes believers over-isolate from the world 
to the point where they, there's no missional good happening and they try to forget all the brokenness around them instead of taking the gospel to that brokenness. Another thing, another side that we are on is that we become overrun by the evil of the world. We throw our arms up, give up as though God isn't on the throne. And I don't know about you, but for me, it's a lot easier to fall into the latter of those two categories. Especially when the evil is coming from a place it shouldn't. When the evil is coming from God's people is when it's the most discouraging. And over the coming weeks, we're going to look at walking with God in the midst of darkness and, and we're going to look at this, what it is when the darkness is, is coming from those who should be walking with God. This morning we're in 1 Kings 16. 1 Kings is right before 2 Kings. Um, and we're going to start in, cha- in uh, chapter 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria for 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hail, Heel, we'll call him Heel, son of, uh, in, his, in, his, uh, in his days, Heel of Bethel, sorry, I can't read very well today, built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn. And he set up the gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, son of Nun. Looking at these verses, we see that life is lived in the presence of darkness. Life is lived in the the presence of darkness. Now, to, to better understand these verses, I want us to take a good look at the context. Now, in 1 Kings 11, Solomon has many wives from many lands. He starts going after their gods, worshiping their gods. And it's told that the kingdom's going to be divided, not under his reign, but under his son's reign. And it's told that the person who's going to divide that kingdom is Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And so Jeroboam, this becoming public, realizes this isn't a good thing for my uh, life expectancy. And he goes to Egypt for a while. Solomon dies. Jeroboam comes back. And Jeroboam goes before Rehoboam, because names had to rhyme. And Jeroboam says, hey, 
your dad made us work real hard. Why don't you lighten the load? And Rehoboam gets bad counsel, takes the bad counsel and says, you wimps, I'm going to make it harder. So then Jeroboam gets 10 of the tribes of Israel to revolt and they break off and become Israel. And Rehoboam leads Judah, which is the tribe of Judah with some Levites in it. And it says that Jeroboam, in order to keep the people from returning to Rehoboam and reuniting as one nation, he sets up golden calves and gets everyone to worship these golden calves so they don't go back and unite. Jeroboam used idolatry as warfare and political sabotage. Here's... Here's what's especially evil about it, okay? I'm going I'm to take a little, and by little, I mean like the smallest speck you can, of sympathy on Ahab. Ahab worshipped these other gods because he thought they were real. Jeroboam set up gods to keep people from going to God. Now, he may have had some faith in him, but he was like, if I do this, then people aren't going to walk with God. And so what we have then, through the rest of kings, you'll have a few kings in Judah that are really good. And it'll say they followed in the ways of their father, David. And then every king in Israel is bad. Okay, if you're trying to figure out if a king is bad or good and he's in Israel, the answer's bad. They only had bad kings. And for a lot of them, it says, they followed in the way of, Jerob- of their father, Jeroboam. Or they, fought, they followed in the footsteps of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And what that means is that they promoted influenced and broadened the scope of idolatry within God's people. With people who who are under the obligations of the covenant and are going to face the consequences of the covenant because they're worshiping other gods. And and then after Jeroboam dies, we have uh, a few more kings and then Omri comes. And in verse 25 of 1 Kings 16, it says, Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. So we get to this point where you have uh, Nadab and and Basha and Ella and Zimri, and they're all evil. They're all promoting idolatry. And then you get to Omri, and it says, and Omri was the worst of all of them. He was worse than Jeroboam himself and all these other guys And then you get to Ahab. And Ahab, son of Omri, verse 30, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So if if Omri's the worst, then Ahab has just elevated to become the worst of the worst. And it says later on that in verse 33, that he did more to provoke to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings who were before him. Not only is he evil, he, he provokes God's anger more than everyone else. This last summer, my family went on a vacation and we, we were touring, we, we toured a cave. Um, you know those tourist traps where they make you buy rocks that look fancy but aren't worth anything? And so we toured the cave, and, and in every cave tour, if you've never been on one, there comes a moment where they turn out the lights, and it is the blackest black you will ever experience. It is unbelievably dark. You have your hand right here, and you, you, you can't see a thing. 
So it's a great time to pickpocket. No. Um, <laughs> and it was just unbelievably dark. And so we, we grabbed our children to make sure they didn't freak out too much when the lights went out. That level of darkness, that's the darkness that was spiritually in Israel. Where the hand could not be seen in front of the face. It was spiritually black. First Kings 21-25, in speaking of Ahab, says there was no one who sold himself to doing evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. This was an exceptionally dark time, but darkness wasn't the only force going on. There was the evil in darkness, and there was also God. God was at work. Go ahead, one more slide. There we go. And, and what did God do? God saw. All of this evil was done, not in the absence of God's knowledge, but in the sight of the Lord. We need to remember, as we look at the world, as we look at the church, as we look at ourselves... Even our hearts, there's nothing that we do that God does not see. God sees every bit of this. He's watching. This should give us a sense of peace, a sense of calm that God knows what's going on in the world. It should also give us a a motivation for repentance. So while Ahab's doing the evil, God sees. But the darkness keeps going because not only is Ahab doing evil, but there's great rebellion. Verses 31 to 33. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took a wife, Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, who, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. So he marries a foreigner. Solomon did this. This is what got Solomon into trouble. And God cared about who, we, who the, his people married because Who you marry deeply influences you. For better or for worse, who you marry deeply influences you. It's a big deal. And Ahab clicked on the wrong page on eHarmony and and met Jezebel. And Jezebel, the daughter of this king who's named after Baal, Ethbaal leads Ahab where he's all too willing to go. And not only, not only does he worship Baal, because so, so Ahab rebels, rebels against God in his marriage and in his worship. So he marries a foreigner, and then he worships her gods. And not only is he worshiping her gods, he becomes a proselyte of her gods. He builds a temple for Baal. He builds Asherah poles. And the, Baal and Asherah were both associated with fertility, with fertility of people, of crops, of livestock, and the worship of Baal and Asherah was deeply sexual. And so this wasn't a matter of going to the wrong church. This wasn't like Ahab said, instead of going to the temple, let's just go to the church down the road. It's a little closer. It wasn't that. It was that they couldn't even worship these gods without egregiously sinning before God. 
And this was a light thing for Ahab. It was no big deal. He was proud of it. This is what he felt his gifting was in. And so where's God in the rebellion? God is provoked. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings who were before him. God cares a great deal. God cares about his law. He cares about his covenant. He cares about his name. He cares about his people. He cares about his worship. And this wasn't just a family or two being pulled away. This was 10 tribes of Israel being pulled away into the false worship of false gods. He was leading them away from God actively and intentionally. And God in 1 Kings 16 and following is mad. We need to remember that the anger of God is a real thing. Something that Ahab at this point didn't yet understand. The third form of darkness we see is is the arrogance. Verse 34, in his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of his son. He set the gates at the cost of another son. And this was according to the word of the Lord. He This gives us an insight. This isn't Ahab. This is someone else. And what this shows us is it wasn't just the king and the queen who were going off doing their own thing without God. This gives us a glimpse into the heart of the people. See, Jericho was the first city conquered. And it was left in rubble intentionally to serve as a reminder of God's power, of God's deliverance, and of God's judgment over the Canaanites. It was left in rubble. You think about it. Jericho was a well-built city. The foundations of the buildings were still there. All the building material was in a pile. It seems pretty easy to think, well, we're needing cities. Let's rebuild that one. But Joshua said, if you build this, you're going to lay the foundation at the cost of your first son, and you're going to set the gates at the cost of your youngest. And this heel guy, I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to undo the reminder of God's power, deliverance, and judgment. And I'm going to make my name great by rebuilding Jericho. We need to understand. This isn't just a, this guy heal. This isn't just his problem. Arrogance is a problem for all of us. And our arrogance and our pride can take us to a place where we do sins we wouldn't imagine otherwise. Makes us think we're invincible, we're unaccountable, And we're higher than the rules. And we're not. And so in the face of the arrogance, God remembers. According to the... His sons died according to the word the Lord spoke by Joshua, son of Nun. God remembered his word. And for better or for worse, God always keeps his word. It can be very easy to be overwhelmed by the darkness around us. And the news is getting harder to watch. There's so much violence. There's so much mistrust, dishonesty, abuse of power, mistreatment of the vulnerable, or just people in general. Sometimes I hear what's going on in the world, but I hear what's going on around me, even in our city, and it just makes me feel sick. Like I just want to give my soul a shower. 
It just, it just feels dirty to be around it. And we sit here and we read about Ahab's evil and idolatry, the arrogance of heel. And we look around all over us and, it, and it's not going away, but it gets worse. Because if we look at the darkness in this context, we see that the darkness isn't necessarily the world. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised when the world is evil. They don't know God. Their hearts aren't regenerated. The darkness is in God's people. And the darkness is in us. My darkness is a problem. We we don't just need to look at the darkness of Israel here. We need to look at the darkness of us. How do we treat idols? The idols of success, tolerance, the American dream, our rights, things that we would elevate above our obedience to God, things we would worship. These are so often the idols of our culture, and all too often we embrace them. How is our pride and arrogance? Are we keeping that in check? Do we care about God's approval and walking in righteousness, or are we somehow above that for our own legacy? You know, we learn a few things about God here, but we also learn what God is not as we look at this passage. I'm going to quickly move through these. First of all, God is not idle. We don't serve an uninvolved God. God did not create the world, get it spinning, and just sit back to watch it. He is, that's the idea called deism. We do not serve a deistic God, a God who is not involved with his creation. Secondly, we see that God isn't flighty. God isn't going to be like, ugh, they're screwed up. I'm just going to walk away. It's just a hot mess. Israel's a hot mess. I'm going to have nothing to do with it. No, he's not flighty. He stays involved. If God was flighty, he wouldn't be angry. He'd just be ambivalent, just like, ah, whatever. And God is not apathetic. God isn't up there saying, I couldn't care less about this. He doesn't forget. He is actively keeping his word. He is actively dealing with sin. His wrath is provoked. And his wrath will be acted on. You know, the evil in the world is one problem. And we deal with that by taking the gospel to it. In all shapes and forms, we take the gospel to the world. But the evil in us, in God's people, needs to be dealt with. And we need to realize, as as angry as we get when we read about Ahab leading the people astray, as angry as we get when we see injustice in the world, when we when we see whether it's it's terrorism or or regimes that take advantage of their people or or people who harm children, as as or or people that just act out in anger and harm their neighbors, as angry as we get about these things. We need to realize God's angry about them, and God's angry about our sin too. And my sin deserves God's wrath. And it doesn't only deserve God's wrath, it demands God's wrath. 
We need to realize the darkness of our own sin. That when we sing, I was a hellbound man, like we're not kidding on that. The good news is that there's something else. There's this table set before us, and this table set before us symbolizes something. And 1 John 4.10 says that. And, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, that's one of those great $10 words. So let's look at propitiation. Propitiation, this is the idea. Here, here's what propitiation is. We deserved this huge pile of wrath. And Jesus on the cross was like a sponge that soaked up all of God's wrath. That all of God's wrath that was set aside for us was spent on Jesus and absorbed by Jesus so that what's remaining for us is the love of God. And we can come to God and receive his love because Jesus was the propitiation. He was the wrath sponge that soaked everything up that we deserved. That, that we've provoked God's anger in our sin. And Jesus absorbed that. About eight years ago. Um, when I was at previous church. And uh, I was helping serve communion one Sunday. And we had the tray, and I'm, I'm carrying this tray around. And I'm passing around, and we're singing some songs. And we're, we're, we did the trays separately, and I'm, I'm passing the juice. The, the, what, what symbolizes the blood of Christ that was poured out for the forgiveness of sins, establishing a new covenant. And I'm passing this out, and we're singing a song that, that has lyrics. I don't remember the exact song. has lyrics that remind us of Christ's sacrifice and what he did. And I remember looking down, and I remember, I remember this distinctly, very vividly. I was handing the tray to someone, looking at the juice, you know, kind of self-meditating on my own sin and realizing that the stuff I did yesterday that I'm disgusted by, all this sin that I repented of during the service, all these things that provoke God's anger, that put me under God's wrath, as Ephesians 2 puts it, that I become a child of God's wrath. All this stuff Jesus took on the cross so I can drink this cup and remember that I'm now a child of God. We, we, we do communion not just to have this once a month checkoff, but to remember that all my sin, all my greed, my pride, my idolatry, my selfishness, my 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 sexual immorality, all my sin, and the wrath that's demanded by it and deserved for it has been dealt with on the cross. Its legal dem demands have been nailed to the cross to the open shame of Satan, and I stand as a child of God and can boldly approach the throne of grace. There's darkness. There's darkness in me. There's darkness in all of us. And there is God. Darkness isn't the only force at work. God sees. God is provoked. God remembers. And the provocation of my sin led to Jesus dying on the cross. And the provocation of your sin too 
led to Jesus dying on the cross. I'm going to ask the elders to come forward take a, uh, to help us distribute communion and those help and lead us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for this, this truth that we can stand before you faultless because Jesus is the propitiation of our sins. God, I pray that you would, you would glorify yourself in us. Remind us of your great love. Remind us of your great grace and forgiveness as we take these elements. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.